Hello, and welcome to the Faithful Forebears. Episode 8, Frostfitha of Gandersheim. Welcome back. Today, we are going back about a hundred years before last episode with Anselm of Canterbury. We're going back to the 900s to look at a woman named Hrosvitha of Gandersheim. Now, I'm pretty excited about this episode because it's going to be a bit different from the others. So far, we've spent a lot of time looking at missionaries, scholars, and administrators of the church. Well, this time, we're going to look at a role we haven't yet, and that is the role of a playwright. Now, that's not all that Hrosvitha wrote, but that's what she's most famous for. In fact, many see her as bringing back theater into the Western world. But before we get too far into that, we need to look at what kind of world she's bringing theater back into. So to do that, we're going back to the dark time of the 900s AD. So remember, at this time, there is a lot of chaos in the Western world. Vikings are attacking up and down the coasts and especially hitting France and England. The kingdom set up by our old friend Charlemagne is just a hollow shell of what it once was. The mini-renaissance that Alcuin had helped was pretty much over by now. And in the east, the Byzantine Empire was having problems as well. The Magyars, an ancestor of modern-day Hungarians, were invading into eastern Europe. So while chaos and collapse were happening in the western world and Byzantium, that wasn't entirely the case everywhere. In one of the places that it was not falling apart was an area of Germany. And this was thanks to a king named Otto I. Now, Otto is fairly interesting himself, and I thought about doing an episode just on him, and maybe I will at some point. But for now, we'll just look at him in passing. King Otto united much of modern-day Germany, and his rule stretched all the way into Italy. And he was crowned the Holy Roman Emperor there, in Rome, in 962 AD. Now this amalgamation of parts of Germany and parts of Italy became known as the Holy Roman Empire. And impressively, this empire, or at least a version of it, would survive all the way until Napoleon Bonaparte in the 1800s. That's almost a thousand years. But it didn't always fare well during that time. And famously, one Enlightenment philosopher said of it, it's really neither holy, nor Roman, nor an empire. But at this time in the 900s, the Holy Roman Empire is doing very well. Otto was able to unite his rule, establish peace, and root out corruption in the church. This usually meant making priests and bishops actually do their job, and not just taking their placement as a social rank. It also meant rooting out another nasty part of corruption in the Middle Ages, the practice of simony. This is when someone buys or sells a church position. So, say a city in the area needs a bishop. Instead of the archbishop actually looking for a worthy candidate, he simply gives the position to the highest bidder. This was unfortunately common in this time, and most of the good church leaders that we'll look at during the Middle Ages are going to be fighting against it. While Otto was rooting out corruption, he was also promoting learning throughout his empire. In this way, Otto was a lot like Charlemagne 150 years before him. The center of learning for Charlemagne had been Aachen, in the palace school with our friend Alcuin. For Otto, there were several centers of learning. 
We'll just look at one of those today, and that is the convent of Gandersheim. Now, Gandersheim had been a convent since the 1850s AD, and it had flourished under the leadership of a line of competent abbesses, and an abbess is the official title of the chief nun that runs a convent. When you think of a convent, I don't know, if you ever do think of convents, you might think of it as some place that's kind of boring, a place where nuns hang out and sing or something. But during this time, it was so much more than that. As the historian Katerina Wilson says, like other great medieval monasteries, it functioned as a school, a hospital, a library, political center, house of refuge, and a center of pilgrimage. There is evidence that while Horosvitha was there, travelers from as far as Spain and the Balkans visited Gandersheim. Horosvitha herself was born sometime in the 930s AD, so about 80 years after this convent was established. It was at this convent that Horosvitha would do most of her work. Now, Horosvitha herself was born sometime in the 930s AD. She was part of a noble family, and we know that because only noble families could send their daughters to this convent in Gandersheim. So from a pretty young age, Horosvitha left and went off to study at this convent. Now, while Horosvitha was here, she never actually became a nun herself. Instead, she would be a canoness, which basically means she wasn't quite a nun, but almost. A nun light, if you will. She did not take the same vows, and she could still own property and have servants. But she would still spend most of her time at the convent and participate in prayers, rituals, and studies. During most of Horosvitha's time at Gandersheim, the abbess was Gerberga II, a name which, for some reason, never really caught on. Regardless, Horosvitha praised Gerberga, and apparently she was a very good abbess. Under Gerberga, Horosvitha learned all she could, and it turned out that that was quite a lot. She was taught language arts through the trivium and mathematical arts through the quadrivium. Remember those? Alcuin had included both of those in his curriculum. Horosvitha also read all sorts of books. She read recent and ancient writers, both pagan and Christian. For example, it appears she read The Venerable Bede. Remember him all the way back from episode 2? And she was familiar with many early Christian writers. Little references and connections to those authors can be found all throughout her works. She took this study very seriously, and she was clearly quite devout. She was also very intelligent, and she loved playing with numbers and words. As with numbers, we will see one of her plays even includes little number riddles and mathematics lessons. And as with words, she would often make puns or plays on words. One such pun was the meaning of her name which people studying afterwards had long since wondered. There were all sorts of ideas, but none really made sense. It wasn't until the 1800s when someone noticed a phrase that Horosvitha used in Latin. She called herself a strong voice, or clarion bell. The two words translated into Old Saxon roughly come out to be Horos Vita. So now she is known as the clarion bell of Gandersheim. Because Hrosvitha had such a quick mind, she loved to read ancient Roman authors. She especially loved to read the works of Roman playwrights, Terence in particular. Now, Terence was a playwright who lived in the 100s BC in the Roman Republic, and he wrote comedies. And these comedies are actually somewhat tame for many of the ancient comedies of Greece and Rome. But 
Even Terence would include lewd or scandalous parts, which involved adultery or extramarital sex. And this troubled Hrosvitha. She greatly loved the wit and the style and the art of these Roman playwrights, but she was not a fan of the lurid adventures that would take place in them. She wanted something with style, wit, and fun, but also with good Christian morals. Sadly, there was no such thing to be found. So she decided that she could change this. She would write plays herself. Except instead of plays with lots of adultery, they would be plays with lots of chastity. The protagonists would not give in to their lustful desires, but instead they would overcome them. This was keeping much more in line with her sensibilities, especially as a nun. Well, as an almost nun. For Osvitha, there was nothing more noble and heroic than one staying chaste for God. So this is exactly what happens to many of her heroes and heroines. Now, it's a pretty big task to imitate these great Roman playwrights, and Hrosvitha acknowledges this fact. In fact, in the introduction to one of her plays, she says this, May Catholics one may find. We are also guilty of changes of this kind, who for the beauty of their eloquent style prefer the uselessness of pagan guile to the usefulness of sacred scripture. There are others also who, devoted to sacred reading and scoring the works of other pagans, frequently read Terence's fiction, and as they delight in the sweetness of his style and diction, they are stained by the learning of wicked things in his depiction. Therefore I, the strong voice of Gandersheim, have not refused to imitate him in writing, whom others laud in reading, so that the same self-form of composition in which the shameless act of levitious women were praised, the laudable chastity of sacred virgins be praised, within the little limits of my talent. Now, Hrosvitha wrote in Latin, but this English translation is done by Katerina Wilson, and Wilson tries to keep some of the meter and the rhyme that Hrosvitha's original had. But before we look at these plays, I should just mention a little bit about the state of theater in Western Europe. The state was, there wasn't really any. Since the fall of the Western Roman Empire, theater had pretty much fallen by the wayside, at least in any organized ways. There were no plays written in Western Europe that we know of from Roman times all the way to Hrosvitha. So Hrosvitha gets the credit for bringing theater back into the West. So next time you go see a Broadway show, thank Hrosvitha. All right, let's look at some of Hrosvitha's plays. Now, many of Hrosvitha's plays take place in the 200s or 300s AD. This is a time when Christianity was still illegal, so there are many historical stories of men and women who would be killed for their faith. For Hrosvitha, this is the perfect time period to showcase Christian virtue against pagan vice. One of these plays is called The Martyrdom of the Holy Virgins of Agape, Kionia, and Irene. And it's a comedy. What? You couldn't tell that from the title? Well, more commonly these days, it's called Dulcitius. But to describe the play, let's see how Hrosvitha describes it herself. Here's her summary. The martyrdom of the holy virgins Agape, Caenia, and Hyrene, who in the silence of the night, Governor Dulcitius secretly visited, desiring to delight in their embrace. 
but as soon as he entered, became demented, and kissed and hugged the pots and pans, mistaking them for the girls, until his face and his clothes were soiled with disgusting black dirt. Afterwards, Count Sicinus, acting on orders, was given the girls so he might put them to tortures. He too was deluded miraculously, but finally in order that Agape and Caionia be burned, and Herene be slain by an arrow. I know, you are laughing just thinking about it. Or maybe more realistically, you're thinking, if this is what her comedies are like, I'm not sure I want to know what her tragedies are. Well, at least for her medieval audience, there was some pretty funny stuff in here. For instance, for some reason, people during this time loved kitchen humor. That's why a large part of this play happens in the kitchen, where Dulcitius, the antagonist, kisses the pots and pans thinking they're the three virgins. This was comedy gold. And also, like any good comedy, it has a happy ending. Now, it's true the three protagonists die at the end, but for Herosvitha, they die happy and keeping their purity in spite of the antagonist's attempts. At the end of this play, Irina, the last sister, says this, This is the greatest joy I can conceive, but for you this is a cause to grieve, because you shall be damned in Tartarus for your cruelty, while I shall receive a martyr's palm and the crown of virginity. Thus I will enter the heavenly bridal chamber of the eternal king, to whom are all honor and glory in all eternity. So, while it may not seem like the happy ending you liked, for Herosvitha, it really is the good winning over the bad. I should also mention that in this play, Dulcidius is a real historical figure. He was a Roman governor in the late 200s and early 300s who was known for being particularly cruel to Christian women. Also, the three protagonists of the play were real Christian martyrs, but from a different century than Dulcidius. So Herosvitha knew her history, but she also wasn't afraid to take some creative license. Now, her plays were not just about virgins, though sometimes they were. Sometimes her plays were about men and women with loose morals repenting and converting to a pure life. In one of the plays, a lustful young pagan man, who is into some pretty weird stuff, receives forgiveness and converts from evil intent, even though at the end he too dies. But not everything was just about lust and overcoming desire. Herosvitha included lots of fun and clever things into her plays as well. In one, she includes a music lesson. And in another, like I mentioned before, she includes a math lesson. In fact, it's very reminiscent of the word problems of our old friend Alcuin from episode 4. The math lesson can be found in the play The Martyrdom of the Holy Virgins Fides, Spes, and Caritas. Yes, this is another comedy. And it happens when a Christian woman is being questioned by the Emperor Hadrian about her children. It goes like this. Sapientia. That's the mother in our story. O Emperor, you wish to know my children's age. Fides has completed a diminished, evenly even number of years. Space, on the other hand, a diminished, evenly uneven number. And Caritas an augmented, unevenly even number of years. Emperor Hadrian. Your reply leaves me totally ignorant as to the answer to my question. Now, if you're like me, you're in the same boat as Emperor Hadrian. Horosvitha goes on to explain what exactly all these medieval mathematical terms mean. Diminished, augmented, evenly even, evenly uneven. It's actually all pretty fascinating, but 
it's fairly confusing, so we're going to skip it. Let's just say that medieval people were far cleverer than we usually give them credit for. The math lesson goes on for two pages, and at the end of the lesson, Emperor Hadrian replies, What a thorough, perplexing lecture has arisen from my simple question concerning the children's ages. And I should also say, while Horosvitha strives to keep her plays generally in the PG realm, don't think that she gets too highbrow to miss out on some cheap laughs. In one of her plays, a character is cursed so that whenever they try to speak, they fart. This, too, was apparently a classic in medieval comedy. And you know what? Some things are just funny in any age. Now, there's debate as to whether Horosvitha's plays were ever actually performed while she was alive. Some believe they were not, and they were just written to be read. And this is called a closet drama, a play not meant to be performed. Some people believe they actually were acted out, but in private. But since the late 1800s, they actually have been performed. And if you ever get a chance, I imagine they would be pretty charming to see. Just realize, though, that it might have martyrdom in the title, and yes, it still really is a comedy. Now, Horosvitha did not just write comedies. She also wrote legends and dramas and epics. One of her epics was about Otto I, who we talked about at the beginning of the episode, and whose reign she lived under. And she portrayed him like a King David from the Old Testament, an ideal ruler who's wise and holy and merciful and strong. She also spends a good deal of time praising the emperor's two queens, Edith and Adelheid. Another one of her work focuses on the history of her own convent of Gandersheim, in which she praises very highly the abbesses who led the convent, including her own superior, Gerberga II. Now, over her life, Rosvitha would write eight legends, six plays, two epics, and a short poem. She would also write about the lives of two popes, but sadly, those works are lost. Now, Horosvitha is yet another one of those people to whom we owe quite a bit, and yet we don't even know about her. She is the first Christian playwright ever, and the first woman playwright ever, at least as far as we know. She helped bring theater back into the Western Christian world. I think also she's, in general, a great role model to any aspiring Christian artist. Go out and do what you're good at, and use your wit and your cleverness and your style. You can do it while still being faithful. And you can do it while being pretty funny. Even if that means including a fart joke or two. I'll end with some charming words from Horosvitha herself, as she writes this. Therefore, reader, whoever you may be, if you live rightly and are wise in God, don't withhold the favor of your benign goodwill from these flawed pages that are not built on the authority of precedent or the wisdom of sages. If by chance you find and hear something well wrought, give all the credit to God's grafting. But for all the flaws, assign the blame to my poor crafting. Well, that's all for Hrosvitha. I hope you've enjoyed learning about the strong voice of Gandersheim. Next episode, we will look at another extremely creative and talented woman, Hildegard of Bingen. If you have any questions or comments, please don't hesitate to contact me at faithfulforebears.com. If you like the podcast, please leave a review and maybe tell a friend. I'm Eric Clausen, and thanks for listening. <laughs>